Would you please turn in your Bible tonight to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter is writing to young Christians, a young church, and Peter exudes gospel optimism as he writes to them about growing up as God's children, growing up in the grace of God. There's good news here tonight for sin-weary saints. We're going to begin reading in chapter... Chapter 1, verse 22, so that we catch a flavor of the context. Of course, if you, uh, you know this, but uh, when Peter wrote this letter, he didn't write it with chapter and verses. It's just a letter, and uh, sometimes we lose the flow if we don't um, kind of pull things back together. So we're going to start reading verse one, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and we'll read through the first three verses of chapter 2. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever." And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's just ask the Lord to bless his word to us tonight. Father, thank you that your word is living and dynamic, it's active, and it is imperishable. And thank you, O Father, that this word, which was able to bring us from the dead in Jesus Christ, this word is able to transform us into his likeness. And and so, Lord, give us that optimism tonight um, as we hear from the Apostle Peter, as he speaks these inspired words, may we receive them for our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John Piper, in his treatment of this text, says that this is uh, one of those texts in the Bible that is a great uh, antidote to the uh, disease of spiritual fatalism. The disease of spiritual fatalism. Uh, What that disease is, is the idea that, um, and it's it's probably not spoken this way, but it's, it's sort of an assumption that you really shouldn't expect a whole lot in terms of your Christian experience. Maybe uh, it's the idea that you're maybe just stuck where you are in your Christian experience. Uh, you look at other people and you see that they've, they've grown. You see that they are, um, there seem to be uh, increasing spiritual intensity in, in their lives. You see how earnestly they pray. You hear them talk about Uh, the joy that they're getting from reading their Bible or the benefit that it's been to them. Uh, You see them making efforts maybe to witness and and talk to others. But you have a sense maybe that that while you're happy for them, there's a lingering sense in your life that that's probably not going to happen to you. That your background, your personality, your sin struggles... Um, have made those experiences probably just beyond your reach. You'll never be 
like that. That's spiritual fatalism. It's, it's the idea that whatever the Bible says about delighting in God, about communion with Jesus Christ, about being filled with the Holy Spirit, about gaining ground on besetting sins, having a rich assurance of God's love for you that overflows with a love for others, that whatever the Bible says about those, those things, you believe them, you maybe have tasted certain aspects, but you've come to maybe a secret conclusion in your heart that you will probably not have a rich experience of those things for yourself. You're happy when others do. You wish maybe that you could, but for whatever reason, um, your style, your brand, your nature of your Christian faith just isn't that. That's Christian fatalism. And so we settle, you see, for less than what God has for us in Jesus. We'll settle for um, believing these things, believing in Jesus, believing in the promises. We, we go to worship. We, uh, we enjoy it sometimes. Um, we try to grow in holiness. But um, as far as the, the sweetness, the richness, the fullness the joy, the peace, the assurance, the power, those are probably things for someone else. Well, the problem with that is that it's just, it's just not what God has for us. Uh, it's not how Peter talks. It's not how Paul talks. It's not how James talks. And, and that sort of, those sort of assumptions, you see, keep people mired in spiritual immaturity. It, it, in a sense, hinders them from experiencing what God has for them. It, it can make a whole, whole church, a whole community stunted in their Christian growth. And when people, in a sense, break out of that um, sort of assumption of what, is, what can be expected, when people move on beyond that, there can be some suspicions even about those folks. Well, Peter, tonight, we've been studying uh, the, his letter, and he's been giving you a series of commands. After he's explained, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the foundational reality that matters, uh, that makes all the difference in the world for Peter. It is the source of hope, and because we have a, a historical fact upon which to base our hope, Peter says, now hope. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And, and be holy and conduct yourselves with fear and love one another sincerely, earnestly from the heart. He's given us these commands, every command wrapped with gospel truth. And we have the same thing again tonight. The command tonight is long for pure spiritual milk. Crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And that command, you see, battles against the devil's lie that, that you can't change, that you really uh, won't grow up in your salvation. It's an awful thing to say. Imagine if someone said to a, a, a gangly, a, you know, 13-year-old teenage boy who's all elbows and knees and, and uh, his voice is strange and stumbles over things, and if someone said to him, well, you know, that's, that's just the way you are. You're, you're always going to be like that. That's an awful thing to say, because it's not true. 
If he's healthy, he's going to grow and all those ligaments and joints are going to kind of get knit together and, and you'll be able to know how to use them and, and uh, be a strong young man. And so we don't want to settle for less than what God has for us. Tonight, I'm, we're going to be looking at this text. Um, first of all, Peter shows us something to put away. And secondly, he shows us something to pursue. And then he shows us something that's been promised to us. Something to put away, something to pursue, something that's been promised. He begins with the command, put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so can be translated there as therefore. He's continuing on with his train of thought. He's just said love one another from a sincere, pure heart. Why? How? Because you've been born again of the imperishable seed, the word of God. There's the, um, the, the your Christian genetics demand and will, will move you to love one another from a pure heart. God is love. God is your father, spiritually speaking. And therefore, you're going to, we know this because you've been born again by the seed of God and God's word, you're going to reflect his nature's character. The Holy Spirit is going to take that imperishable, living, powerful word and use that word to make you someone who actually loves God and loves people. And so Peter here says, because that is all true, in light of what is real and true of you because of your new birth by the power of the word of God, therefore put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And this command then that Peter gives has two assumptions written in it. The first assumption, Peter is acknowledging that there is remaining sin in a believer's life. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander means that these are, these are remnants of the old man that we're still struggling with. This is the battle that we're called to fight. Uh, Peter wouldn't have to give the command if this had all been put aside. But second, the second assumption is that, is that God's children, the father's children, have the ability and responsibility to put these things away. That these aren't just pious ideas, but it's precisely because we've been born again by the power of God. It's precisely because we are, the seed of God is the source of our new life, that we have the ability and responsibility to take up this battle with confidence. I've been talking in this, uh, as we've been going through First Peter, about uh, a very good book by Barbara Duguid called Extravagant Grace, but it's a very good book with some, some hindering weaknesses. And, and, and the reason I bring it up is simply because I know many of you have been reading it and, and you've been blessed by it, and I'm thankful to God for that, and yet um, Duguid doesn't, um, I'm, concerned about the, I'm concerned about the errors. The extravagant grace of Duguid's book isn't extravagant enough. Grace is more extravagant than what she speaks of. One of, the, one of the main themes of the book is what if growing in grace is more about humility and dependence and exalting Christ than it is about defeating sin? What if growing in grace is more about humility, dependence, and exalting Christ than it is about defeating sin? And and her point there is that God's purpose, in, that God is a purpose in remaining sin, that God uses our remaining sin and our failures in order to teach us humility. And that's absolutely true. 
and to teach us dependence on Christ. That is absolutely true. Uh, one of the reasons that God maybe won't take away a besetting sin is because, if you, because it's the only thing that keeps you going back to him. It's the only thing that's sort of battering your self-reliance and knocking the legs out of your self-dependence. And so God has glorious good purposes in remaining sin, and we need to be thankful for them. But that, this phrase, you see, by itself put, puts up a false dichotomy. It separates two things that were never meant to be separated. Dugan will say other things, like if, if the Holy Spirit's purpose is to make us more obedient, he isn't doing a very good job. Because we're not very obedient. Well, again, I, I appreciate the sentiment of that, but that is not how Paul talks. It's not how Peter talks. It's not how James talks. It's a false dichotomy to say, what if the Holy Spirit's work is to make us more humble and dependent and Christ-exalting than it is about defeating sin? You can't separate those two things. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. It is the love for Christ that moves us to obedience to Christ. Never perfect obedience, never meritorious obedience, but true obedience. The Bible talks about the Christian. We, we noticed this a few weeks ago, that, that Christians actually do obey. We do, by the power of God. Peter and Paul all speak of the need to put away sin. And so, you see, if you're growing in humility, you're putting away sin. You're putting away the sin of pride. If you're growing in dependence on Christ, you're putting away the sin of self-dependence. If you're exalting in Christ, you're putting away the sins of self-exaltation. We never do the one without the other. God actually intends us to grow in holiness. And that is a fact that I think Duga does not give nearly enough credit to. Put away, Peter says. Put away all these things. Fight against them. Fight against all malice. Hurting people with words or deeds. Put away all deceit. Just shading the truth, telling half-truths, speaking one thing here and another thing over here. That's deceptive. Put away hypocrisy, this desire to be known as one thing when you're actually not that at all. You're something else. Put away envy, a desire for something that a privilege or a benefit, something that belongs to someone else and you want it and, and you're resentful that they have it and you don't. Put away all slander, which is speaking about someone to a third party to the detriment of this other person's reputation. Accusing someone of something, not to them, so they can defend themselves or, or receive it and confess it, but to other people who have nothing to do with it, so that, again, the name and reputation of your brother and sister is slandered. You could add gossip to that list. These are devastating contradictions to who we are in the seed by which we've been born. Uh, Begg points out, uh, he says, just let me say, these are the sins of the evangelical church. These are the sins that we sort of decide that, you know, it really shouldn't happen, but if it does, it does. It's just sort of maybe human nature. We can be guilty of these things without any great harm, I think we fail to realize how serious God takes 
uh, these sorts of sins. I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 28 through 30. Because these sins that mark that... Uh, Peter lists here, are all marks of people who do not acknowledge God. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, deba a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's, this is in the list, you see, of, of gross, gross sins. The, the failure to acknowledge God, that is the, the, the fountain head of homosexual acts, that same failure to acknowledge God is the fountainhead of gossip. I don't think we really sense that. One of the sins that is, that is devastating the church is the sin of pornography. And men particularly, women also, but men particularly are, are gripped and, and, and wrestle and struggle. And, um, and women in the church are, are, are deeply wounded by the sins of husbands and brothers in the Lord in this. And we will hear as counselors of, of women who are just deeply wounded about this, and rightly so. It's grievous sin. And yet, with all, with all gentleness, I just wonder if, if our female, if our sisters have a sense of the pornographic nature of gossip. It's from the same heart. The same craving. The same need. It's just as relationally perverse. It's just as gross. Just as ungodly. It undermines love just as effectively. It destroys relationships. Proverbs 16, 28 says, A slanderer separates friends. Proverbs 20, 19, Do not associate with a gossip. Martha Peace, in her book, Damsels in Distress, says, Gossip destroys friendships, decimates reputations, and dishonors our Lord. It splits churches and sabotages our Christian witness. Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to help each other. There's too much gossip. There's too much gossip. Too much talking. And we're not, we, we, sometimes we just struggle to know how to respond to that. What do you do if, a good, if your good friend, your dear sister, or brother, men are, can do this too, Starts talking about someone else who's not there and it's in a derogatory way and they're raising concerns they have with that person. And what do you do? Well, you, you say, this is, this is sin. This is sin. 
We're not, we're not allowed to do this. We're not allowed to do it. Paul's commanding Ephesians 4.29, just a great rule. How, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, none, but only what is useful for, for building others up according to their needs and benefiting those who listen. So, so when you're talking, it's, it's to be for the need of others and the benefit of those who are listening. And so the question to ask is, is that what my conversation does? Is that what it looks like? Is that what it sounds like? You know if you have this uh, struggle in this area, and if you have a struggle in this area, that's okay. <laughs> we all struggle. But then ask people to help you. Gossip is not okay. There's a little poem that I came across. It says this, If all that we say in a single day with never a word left out were printed each night in plain black and white, it would make strange reading, no doubt. And then just suppose, ere our eyes should close, we would read the whole record through. Then wouldn't we sigh and wouldn't we try a great deal less talking to do? And I more than half think that many a kink would be smoother in life's tangled thread if half what we say in a single day were to be left forever unsaid. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? That's truth for me too. You see, Peter is talking about the stuff where we actually live and the life that we, as we experience, and it's essential. Peter wants us to know that we wage war with all these sins that, that wage, uh, that battle against love, all these sins that wage war with our soul, these sins that infiltrate the body, the holy nation of God, and so discord and enmity and division where there ought to be life and health and peace. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, Peter gives us something to pursue. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. All these sins that he's, been, that he's listed are evidences of immaturity, of, of a failure to grow up. And Peter tells us, frankly, grow up. Grow up into your salvation. Grow up into all that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And, and the way we do that is longing, craving this pure spiritual milk. Crave it like a newborn baby. Crave this pure spiritual food. How does a baby crave for their milk? Well, they, it's incessant. They cry. They make known their desire with every fiber of their being, and they will not be comforted, you see, until they receive what they're looking for. It, it's with that intensity, that persistence, that Peter says long for this pure spiritual milk. Babies uh, understand that without that milk, they will not exist. They can't grow. And Christians need to know the same thing. We need the word, the pure spiritual milk of God. We need to have it if we're going to grow up. And the question, of course, then, what is that milk? If you're going to crave it, if you're going to long for it, if you're going to thirst for it, what is it? Well, the, I think there's, Peter puts together two aspects of this milk wonderfully here. First of all, notice, if you look at the flow, you look back a little bit, we, what has Peter been talking about? He's been talking about the imperishable word of God. That, that the pure milk is the word of God. And, and we can see this is where uh, Peter might have heard that from Jesus. John 17, 17. Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And Peter in 2 Timothy chapter 3 delights in this ability of the word to sanctify us, to, to make us wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 15. It's, it's designed to have that 
power, that ability to rebuke and correct and teach and train and grow us up. And so what Peter is saying is, crave then the truth of the Word of God. Crave sermons and songs and books and Bible studies that feed you God's truth. That's why we come together, one of the reasons we come together on a Sunday, and we, and we open the Bible together, because this is able to make us grow up. We have absolute confidence that this, and this word is essential to spiritual maturity. But it's not just the word. I love how Peter uh, ends this little uh, command, this phrase. He says, crave this pure spiritual milk, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, when Peter thinks of the word that is able to make them grow up, and he thinks of the milk that we're to long for, it's not just systematic theology. It isn't just doctrinal assertions or historical facts. It's not just biblical truth. Pharisees had biblical truth. The devil knows biblical truth. The milk is the word which was preached to you, which is the gospel. See, that's the last verse, chapter 1. This word is the good news that was preached to you. And in the good news, you see, we taste the goodness of God for us. One of the um, most frustrating things, experiences that you can have as a Christian is to have a belief that the Bible can change your life, and so you study the Bible, you tr or you try to do devotions, and you're learning biblical truths, but nothing really seems to be changing. Well, the, there might be a host of reasons for that, but, but maybe the core reason is that are you, are you tasting the goodness of God for you in the Word? You see, that's what the Pharisees were not doing. They, they didn't find the word to be milk because they tasted God's goodness to them. It was a rule book for them to gain whatever they thought they had coming to them. But they don't, they don't open their Bible and see God's patience and God's kindness, His compassion, His faithfulness, His love, His grace for them, for the sinner. And so Peter just says wonderfully, if, if you've tasted the goodness of God, have you tasted that the Lord is good? That's the milk. And so when, when you're fighting a besetting sin, you see, that is what's able to give you power over that besetting sin. It's the power of a new affection as you see the goodness of God in you. Taste the goodness of God to you. You will not, you see, be able to just tritely go on in your sin when you're tasting the love of God for you in Jesus Christ and the reality of the cross is there in front of you and the amazing patience of your Father and the, the beauty of the Holy Spirit who's leading you and speaking to you, convicting you and assuring you through the Word. But you have to taste the goodness. If you're not tasting the goodness, you're not, you're not tasting the milk. It's just maybe powder. It's not sweet. It's not like honey. If indeed, since you've tasted that the Lord is good. Because by that, you may grow up into salvation. It's interesting that Peter, as he says this, so that by it, this milk, 
You will grow up in your salvation. When he talks about growing up, he uses the passive tense. It means that we don't grow ourselves up. It's something that happens to us through the milk. As you drink the milk, as you feed on the milk, it grows you up. It makes you strong. It is sufficient, you see, to the task. That's great, great encouragement. As you taste the goodness of God in the word, as you come back to the gospel again and again, as you sense God's goodness for you, not just for other people, but his goodness to you in Jesus Christ, that will be a power within you that is growing you up in salvation. And what does that mean to grow up into salvation? It means that you're going to be growing into a deeper, richer understanding of what God has done for you, a greater experience of the gospel truth for you. It will become more precious to you. There will be growth in faith and growth in confidence and growth in gospel assurance, growth in joy, growth in purity, growth in love, growth in holiness, growth in patience. It's what the Word does. It's what the word does. It's what the milk does. You see, and that battles against the spiritual fatalism that just says, that, well, I can't. I can't. And I, and I understand that. I understand that when, when we, as we fight against our sin, I mean, you know, Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk, and you might be sitting here going, well, that's exactly my problem. I, do, I don't crave it. I believe it, but, but opening my Bible is, is it's just, it's so hard for me. And, and I'll just be honest, I don't crave it. So what good is it to tell me to crave it, you see, when I don't crave it? What good is it to tell me to, 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 to pant for streams of living water like a deer, Psalm 42? I'm not a deer. I'm just not that kind of person. Piper uses this great illustration. That some of us think, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a camel. And I just wander around through the spiritual deserts and I'm in dryness and I'm just trying to make it from water hole to water hole. Not a deer, I'm a camel. Well, what do you do if you're a camel? I think you recognize that God can make you a deer. You see, when God commands, He promises to give. He always does that. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 2, quick? Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13, one of the great texts in Scripture about sanctification. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How? Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When God commands us to work out our salvation, to grow up in salvation, God immediately reminds us that he has the power. He will be at work so that we will his good pleasure and we work his good pleasure. And so you see, when Jesus 
uh, asks people to do the impossible. He gives them the power to do the impossible. He goes to the lame man who's never walked a day in his life, and he says to him, take up that mat and walk. The lame man does not say, well, but I can't walk. I've never walked. I'm not a walking kind of person. I'm a mat person. That's not what he says. In the words of Jesus comes the power of Jesus. And the man receives that power. There's something in the way, in the tone of Jesus' voice. There's something in his eyes. There's something in this man's spirit that resonates with the spirit of Jesus. And suddenly, for the maybe the, the, absolutely the first time in his life, he believes that he can take up that mat and he, and he picks up the corner and he stands up and he walks by the power of God. The Bible tells us that God's word does that. It is not in vain. It doesn't fall to the ground and do nothing. And that the God who has regenerated you then by the imperishable living dynamic word of God, that God is able to take the milk of that word, the goodness of God in that word, and he's able to make you do what you could never do in your own strength. That's the beauty of the gospel. John Bunyan has a great little poem. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. It says, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And and Paul, in fact, says, when the law came and said, thou shalt not covet, covetousness sprang to life in me. Sin sprang to life in me, and I died. I realized that when the law said, do and don't, that I didn't and, and did. Exactly the wrong way. Exactly opposite. Why is that? Because the law has no power. Run, John, run, the law demands. Many of you have been in church your whole life, and that's just what Christianity sounds like to you. Run, run, go. And you feel you sense that, but, but it, there's no feet and there's no hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what the gospel does. It bids you fly. You who've never actually truly loved anything in your life, truly, the gospel comes and says, now love one another earnestly, deeply, sincerely from the heart. Well, how in the world am I going to be able to do that? The gospel bids me fly and then gives me wings. God pours his love into your heart. And you suddenly see people with new eyes and you see God with a new sense of gratitude and love. And for maybe the first time in your life, you experience a craving for Jesus Christ. You want to know him. You want to know the power of his resurrection. You want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You want to know Jesus. It's what the gospel does. You see, friends, salvation is not just a matter of having your sins forgiven. It is a matter of being brought into relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit so that God is now at work in you to make you a new person. And that's a long, slow, hard, messy process. But it's true. We can grow. Peter says, let's grow as we crave pure spiritual milk.
Peter calls us, you see, with this wonderful gospel optimism to believe the whole gospel, to believe that no matter what our past experiences in the Christian life have been, those past experiences do not have to be determinative. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let the gospel be true and our past experiences just pass away. I am not bound by my past experiences. I'm not, I'm not enclosed or enslaved to my past failures and, and experiences. If the, if the Bible says, if the gospel says, if it calls me to fly and if it, me, it promises me wings, then by God's grace, I want to fly. I want to love. I want to actually love. I want to be done with worry. I want to be done with fear. I want to be done with lust. I want to be done with impatience. I want to be, I want to be done with self-reliance. And I know that I won't be done with all of those things, any of those things, in perfection. I know that until Jesus comes again. But if the, if the gospel says I can grow, then, then God help me, I want to grow. Do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? Do you want to grow passionately? Do you want to grow earnestly? Is, is the Holy Spirit in, just speaking to you and, 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 and calling you on, and maybe you're fearful because you've, you've, you've believed you could before, and then you failed miserably. And maybe it just seems too risky to, to believe again. Let God be true and, and all the rest of it a lie. Let's not live by experiences. Let's live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's live by the gospel. Let's be honest about our weakness. Let's be truthful about our failures, but let's be clear about the gospel and what it can do, and let's encourage one another then to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and let's believe that as we ask God for what is pleasing to him, what is according to his will, let's believe the words of Jesus that he will do in us more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. One of the joys of being a pastor is I get to see the power of God transforming the lives of his people. It's a beautiful, glorious thing. It's a holy thing. And by the grace of God, may we see more and more and more. Amen. Father, thank you that Peter, this man who had so much confidence in himself, lost all of that confidence one awful night as he ran face to face into his weakness and his sin. And I thank you that this man, Peter, was given true hope and true confidence when he heard the astounding news that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that Jesus called Peter into his service. Lord, some of us are really, really tired on this pilgrimage. We've been trying hard, and we're deeply disappointed in ourselves. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know the trials of pilgrimage. You can sympathize with us in our weakness. But Jesus, I thank you that you don't come simply to empathize, but you come to remind us that you've called us to this pilgrimage and your power and grace is sufficient to bring us home. Lord, some of us are just really discouraged about a besetting sin in our life and we've said a thousand times we'll never do it again and 
And then this week happened. And we did it again. And it seems easier just to believe that we'll, we'll be a, a second-tier Christian. And Lord, we ask that you'd forgive our unbelief. Oh Lord, I pray that the gospel would be good news for us as sinners, both in that we're reminded that all of our sin is washed away and that we're more loved than we could possibly imagine. In our, even in our sin, you loved us while we were sinners. You gave your life for us when we were in sin. And you have absolute confidence in the work that you've begun, and so you call us then to drink from that confidence, to taste your goodness to us, and you promise the grace to grow. Oh, Lord, I, you know every heart here tonight. I thank you that those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. We're free from the law's condemnation. We're free from the bondage and power of sin. We're free from the threat of hell and judgment. And we are free to grow because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so, Lord, I pray that we would go to work then with new tenacity, with new hope, not in ourselves, none in ourselves, but great hope in the power of the word of God, great hope in the working of the Holy Spirit, great hope in the sovereign purposes of the one who saved us and in the beautiful, infinite love of the one who gave his life for us. May Jesus be our life. We pray it in his name. Amen.